Yeah, I think there's so many people on the left who sort of see this moment as as a in parallel to 1945, where you have um, uh, you've had a, a period of government control, unprecedented control over industry, over people's lives, and 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 their whole big game plan is just to continue that for as long as feasibly possible. Um, I think I'm kind of actually disappointed how um, people on the right have not been able to use this crisis very well. Uh, we haven't even been able to extend shopping hours on Sundays. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addison with Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Ash and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'll be joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Tom Harwood, a commentator and journalist with Guido Fawkes. So Daniel, you've been out of the podcast for a couple of weeks. Is, it, is the rumours true that you've been faking COVID? Uh, <laughs> well, far from faking, I was extremely worried that I did actually have it for a couple of weeks, but thankfully did the uh, the rather unpleasant test, it must be said, and uh, came they, back. They really negative. shove it up your nose. Have you ever had one, Tom? I have had one, actually. It, it came back negative, which I was really surprised by because my housemate was positive. So I imagine I am teeming with antibodies and must have had it back in the early days of the pandemic. Oh, fantastic. We'll all be getting our freedom passports soon, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I had symptoms in March as well, but it's one of those you, at the time you're going to get tested. So who, who knows who's safe and, and who's not until we all uh, jabbed up as uh, the first people are this week. This week, we'll be talking about Brexit deal making, China and trade, and the supposed great reset post COVID. So, there's been plenty of developments on the big B word front as of late. Boris Johnson has returned from Brussels without a deal so far, uh, raising the chance of a no deal Brexit on January the 1st quite significantly. A statement concluded that both sides, the UK and the EU, are far apart but will continue negotiating until Sunday. Uh, Tom, is this all just the drama before a miracle turnaround? Are we going to definitely still get a deal or are these stumbling blocks uh, pretty real and pretty concerning? Well, it's interesting. There are two sort of extreme schools of thought on the pro-Remain side and the pro-no-deal uh, side, and that's that, um, and they sort of coalesce. And it's the idea that Boris is just going over for for theatre to to sort of um, pretend it's really tough to be able to sell then a terrible deal, or that he's going over just for theatre to pretend he's trying to get a deal because he really wants no deal at the end of it. I don't think either of those explanations actually are very close to the truth at all. It, the, the government is, of course, striving very hard to get a deal, but there are genuine concerns, as we've been hearing um, for the last six, seven months now on, on fish and on state aid, that level playing field. And those those problems still exist. There was movement two weeks ago, then suddenly things um, stopped, the progress started to go backwards. Um, and it it's one of those things that is going to go right down to the line. And a question for you, Tom, and, and then maybe Matthew as well. How concerned are both of you about a uh, no-deal outcome? Do you think it's a much more likely uh, scenario now? Would you be willing to put a percentage estimate on it, perhaps? I'd say that the uh, likelihood of it is about 48%. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. I like it. You're famed for your forecasting skills in other areas. <laughs> Have you got any money on it, Tom? I don't have any money on it. I'm still waiting for my Biden winnings, actually. Um, Betfair are yet to pay out, which in my that is a disgrace. <laughs> I mean, I think at a fundamental level, Tom, you're absolutely right that uh, Boris wants a deal. I, I think it's quite clear, even even though I'm you know quite severe Brexit, and I, and I don't think a no deal would be the end of the universe. It's quite clear that we don't want tariffs 
on EU goods in either direction. We don't want more border checks and complexity for business. Um, and there's a bunch of other risks when it comes to supply chains in the short run in particular, um, as well as questions about digital trade and GDPR. And, you know, there's there's a, there's a million different issues across industries if, if the UK leaves without a deal, not, not to mention the potential security um, and policing cooperation that could be undermined. And I think eventually they're going to end up coming back to the table and wanting some kind of a deal. Um, even those who talk about a global Britain, um, I think, should acknowledge the fact that a global Britain also wants to deal with its closest trading partner, even if they don't want to be part of that particular union. Um, I still lean on the side of deal. I think I think this is potentially a lot of drama. I don't buy the idea that Sunday is the last day either. There's a whole other three weeks to the end of the year, and I think they can always do a technical extension if they really need it to, to, to get it through Parliament. So I, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic for deal, maybe about 60%, 70% chance, which is probably playing above the general odds, and I should, I should get some money onto the market. But it, it just seems like, in the end, these are ultimately quite technical issues. You're right. And we, we can and should have debates about them, but they're ultimately compromisable as well. They can be solved, I think. Well, Merry Christmas to uh, trade negotiators, if that does turn out to be the case. Um, Matt, you mentioned that you, you kind of don't think that no deal is the end of the world, but obviously still not ideal from a free market perspective. Do you think that no deal in this new age of COVID-19 is... A potentially worse outcome that we should be more worried about now um, than, than we perhaps would have been before? I mean, I suppose from a, a pure, the, the economy is already struggling and you, you don't want to make it um, any more shocks, you don't want any more risks. But I actually think COVID and Brexit are two very different types of shocks. So while COVID was a, a kind of temporary shock to supply chain in terms of a very increase in demand for a bunch of products that's now all been sorted, um, Brexit is is a very different situation because it, it changes the kind of border arrangements and, and the, the supply chains will eventually be able to, you know, adapt to whatever circumstances they're facing. Like, I don't think there's going to be, you know, mass shortages of food or medicine um, and there will be some stockpiling, but to some extent in the UK to make sure that in case there's any delays that things get through. That doesn't seem like a major issue to me, but I think just we've got to remember that, that red tape is already a huge cost in businesses and now with a potential kind of proper border between the UK and the EU, that is already costly, even when there is a deal. And we have to acknowledge that even as Brexiteers, that frictionless trade was a welcome um, facet of the EU and we should try to continue frictionless trade as much as possible without necessarily being part of the union um, and with maintaining our sovereignty. Now, I suppose that then comes down to what the core of the um, talks are about, which is whether or not those two goals can be maintained, or whether the UK and the EU's view is asking for too much when it comes to access to the market and, and the EU's asking the UK too much in terms of uh, undermining sovereignty. Well, let's move on to some of the specific holdups in the negotiations and some of the policy questions at hand. It seems like things are really getting bogged down as ever over things like fish, uh, as well as the level playing field provisions and governance issues more broadly. And I think Fish is probably the best place to start. Tom, do you think that the UK is over-prioritizing fish? Um, it's a fairly small part of our GDP, um, and it seems to me more of a, a kind of, polit for political reasons, we're prioritizing fish. Is there something more to this? It's an incredibly symbolic issue. And it really goes, it's, it's one of those issues that people will uh, buy the deal on or not. And actually, the asks of the UK government aren't, all that extraordinary. We, I think we're asking for about an 80% um, level of control in our waters. Now, Norway has 85%. So we're, we're looking for a comparable deal that, um, that these um, Scandinavian countries have. 
Um, and that doesn't seem to be uh, particularly unreasonable, especially when you consider how our sense of self as an island nation, our maritime history, and the um, the importance of that issue of fish as a as a as, as a talking point in the referendum, really, as well. Those all come together to mean that this is actually uh, incredibly more important than its percentage GDP would suggest. So I guess to kind of drill down to a little more, let's say in uh, an alternate uh, universe we had, fish wasn't one of the key issues in the referendum. It didn't become this kind of symbolic issue about taking back control of our waters and borders, etc. Would you still be placing as much emphasis on it? Or is this really the kind of the political aspect of it that makes it um, a worthwhile sticking point, I guess, in negotiations? I think it's hard to do a counterfactual because you'd have to construct an idea of Britain that wasn't based around itself as an island nation, that didn't have this sort of um, ruling the waves um, history to it. I think that that is actually something that's really important in our general psyche. And so the idea that the waters around um, our country would be controlled by a foreign power is a deeply concerning one on a political and sort of um, self-identity level. See, see, Tom, I understand completely the the argument that you're making there about identity and politics, and I understand why this is such a symbolic issue on both sides, in fact, for the the French industry as well, for, for Macron in particular. But at the same time, I just can't, I just can't get excited about the issue. It is fundamentally a a tiny part of the UK's economy. Um, The way we should be allocating fishing um, rights in UK waters should probably be indiscriminate, even if we technically have sovereign control. um, There's the, the best way we know from a market perspective is is to put quota have a quota based system in which you have tradable quotas, um, and each each fisherman can apply to use the quota, and whoever's willing to pay the most to use the quota um, gets gets to fish and is the most efficient and getting the most value out of out of the space. So it's it's not something that I, I can see is a particularly salient issue in my mind, and I know that that doesn't <laughs> doesn't. It's a completely different for the, the way negotiators are thinking on on both sides, and and if Boris doesn't get his you know decent amount of the quotas back, it's going to be a kind of Chamberlain moment where he's capitulated to the enemy. But at the same time, it just it doesn't feel like something that we should be getting that excited about, especially if if this was the one thing holding up negotiations. We know it's not at the moment, but if it was the one thing holding up negotiations, Tom, would you be really willing to I don't know crash out of the EU without a deal in exchange for like? 10 or 20% less of, of the fishing waters? Do you think that would be a trade-off willing to make or you would be willing to make? I think in terms of our standing and sense of self, it, it, it would not be a trade-off that we'd be willing to make because we're looking through this at the moment and I appreciate this is an Adam Smith Institute podcast, but we're looking through this, uh, we're looking at this through an <laughs> economic lens and that's that's not what um, all of the negotiation is about. Um, yes, of course, the economic side is incredibly important, um, but also so too is that um, level of symbolism. And I, I'm not sure that that um, this government would be willing to to accept the risk, run the risk, of being attacked by um, Remainers, obviously for for not having the sort of level of integration with the EU that we had before, but also by Brexiteers, by on this most pivotal issue that, if anything, has soared in importance in the last few months. Um, if if that were to uh, be an unsatisfactory arrangement in terms of who controls, not so much the policy specifically, but who controls that policy, um, then then I think I think that, that that the government would be in very very tricky waters. 
I, it is kind of ironic that some of the most prominent Brexiteers at the moment are currently arguing when it comes to COVID about the need to be considering trade-offs and the costs and benefits, different policies. Um, and yet it seems like sometimes certain values, and perhaps rightfully so, are, are put above all else. Oh, if we can't convert you to uh, pure neoliberalism on fish top, <laughs> the kind of cold-hearted approach looking at purely GDP with no symbolism whatsoever, perhaps we can get you on GDP the isn't level people, <laughs> um, we've had a lot of talk about the level playing field provisions being also very important, much like fishing, uh, especially with a focus on things like state aid. So perhaps, Tom, we can get you on the state aid issue, uh, not being the hold up that it needs to be. How much leeway in future policymaking should Britain give up in order to get their access to the European market? Should we be putting our foot down and insisting that actually we, uh, we need our own powers of, of state aid, for example? Well, I think there's two issues here. I think um, obviously it's not particularly desirable for any government to um, to deploy state aid as a matter of routine. Um, but also, we don't want those restrictions to sort of track EU policy, if you see what I mean. Um, we don't want to be uh, controlled by future EU legislation going forward. Um, so if there is an agreement on this, it would need to be something that is 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 not moving, is solid, is sort of this is the the non-regression, if you like, um, and anything in the future is is free to choose. Yeah, I think that's a really solid argument from my perspective. One of the arguments I always found most compelling in favour of uh, Brexit was the fact that whilst it's true, if we look at something like state aid, the Brussels bureaucrats have acted in many ways in a, a more free market manner than would otherwise have been the case domestically, that isn't guaranteed for the future. And actually uh, having some leeway to diverge on something like state aid rules, if Brussels does become more interventionist, uh, is, is very, very valuable. Matthew, uh, I remember you wrote about this a while back for CapEx and how it seemed like the UK was shooting itself in the foot a little by uh, trying to take back hold and take back control of their state aid powers. Yeah, I think I think the argument I made at the time was that Britain was on the verge of punching herself in the face in order to have the freedom to shoot herself in the foot. And the basic argument there was that the UK should be willing to at least give something on state aid. Now, I think that issue is more or less being resolved. doesn't seem like, uh, despite Jane's precise reporting at the time, it doesn't really appear like that was the intractable issue. And, and there's probably something in the text that sorts out the, the UK's got a kind of broad... Even, even being a member... Of the, you should note that even being a member of the WTO... Um, means you make commitments, and we'll talk about China in a minute, you make certain commitments about how you're going to be a market economy and, and not partake in excessive domestic subsidies um, when not called for. So it's not the most unreasonable thing for the EU to also want something like that in a trade deal. And in fact, let's be realistic here, the UK would have to put something like that in the Japan trade deal or the Australia trade deal. There's always these um, level playing field provisions to some extent. What really does worry me, and I think this is where the current issue is more than anything else, is not only the idea that the UK has to stay at a kind of minimum standard of where the EU is today, um, which I think in some ways is problematic because that so-called minimum standard is a huge level of red tape that is damaging to the economy, but that in future, if the EU were to, let's say, you know, limit further the, the working time directive so that you have to work a few hours e each week, that that the UK would be um, forced to effectively follow that and or face the threat of tariffs. And then that, that's the kind of lower playing field part of it. And then the governance part of it, um, the EU even wants to push for being able to do that unilaterally. So you wouldn't even have to go to a, some kind of 
neutral arbitration process to decide whether or not there has been a friction on the on the level playing field. That just seems totally ridiculous, and it defeats the entire point of Brexit in the first place. If Brexit is the UK's ability to break free of the chains of EU policymaking um, in exchange for slightly less access to the EU, uh, the UK has to be able to take advantage of that. We're, we're getting back to territory here where the UK may as well just be in the customs union in the single market, and if you're in the customs union in the single market, you may as well still be in the EU. So it, it, I think the UK has got a very legitimate point on this front, and it is something, you know, it is the kind of do or die of Brexit, and therefore... And, and the future of the UK economy, and therefore it is worth fighting for. Well, I think we'll leave that section there and move on to recent developments with China, Australia and trade. China has imposed a 200% tariff on Australian wine, sparking a global campaign to drink the finest Aussie grapes. This was apparently sparked by Australia's tough-on-China approach uh, over a number of issues this year. Meanwhile, a key wolf warrior Chinese diplomat has tweeted a manufactured image of an Australian soldier murdering an Afghan kid, much to the discord of the Australian Prime Minister. I suppose this really goes down to some of the the fundamental questions about how the world treats the rise of China. And Australia in particular is quite dependent on the rise of China for its trade, and therefore it's also quite susceptible when it starts to kind of push on political points as it had this year. Um, Tom, how, how should we be feeling about this? Is, has Australia become too trade dependent on China and unable to stand up for their values or, or undermining trade and undermining values at the same time? And, and what, what do we, how do we, I guess, <laughs> deal with the rise of China? I guess we'll, we'll come back to that more broadly in a second. Well, I think there's an interesting comparison that we can make here. Um, there are uh, two economies that are relatively similar in terms of wealth. Um, you've got Germany and you've got uh, Australia, both of whom do an enormous amount of trade with China and enjoyed until recently quite close relations. However, that amount of trade has not prevented the Australian government taking a tough stance on um, egregious breaches of international norms that China has engaged in. And obviously, these tariffs have been imposed as a result of those 14, I think, grievances that the uh, Chinese government set out um, against Australia, whether that was Australia standing up for the rights of people in Taiwan or in Hong Kong or in um, um, Hubei or, or, or whether it was their calling for an inquiry into the, the origins of COVID. Now, these are all things that despite Australia's um, close economic relationship with China, um, it has felt able to do. And I suppose that's a, that's a very good thing. Daniel, as free marketeers, many on kind of our side of the debate broadly have been very sympathetic to the rise of China and its marketization and all the trade and, and the globalization and benefits that come out of that. Are we thinking that this was potentially a bit naive now, um, particularly the kind of underlying Milton Friedman-esque assumption that after markets would come political freedom that hasn't really happened in China, as well as the fact that China does often appear to play by different rules. Um, they, they don't seem to have the same ideas as us when it comes to things like manipulating currency or their willingness to use tariffs uh, for political reasons, although you could say the United States has done the same with China, so perhaps it goes both ways. But uh, it does, does feel like there's a lot of concern that in, in other ways, let's say, intellectual property or um, inbound investment. China is, is not somewhere that, that plays by the same rulebook as us, and therefore we have to be very careful with trading with China. Well, I've never been someone who thinks that the kind of, I guess, Milton Friedman idea of economic freedom will inevitably lead to political freedom is, is true. I think that often it does, and it seems like there's definitely a relationship between the two. But 
you're right to say that China is arguably a special case here. There's significant areas where uh, political freedom has hardly advanced at all, even though we've seen, thankfully, of course, uh, millions of people being, uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions being lifted out of poverty as a result of their embracing of, of more liberal and, and free market policies. I think the problem here, though, is that often the kind of knee-jerk reaction is, well, we need to start a sort of trade war with China or we need to get tough on China. Now, there, there's definitely room for the kind of Magnitsky-style sanctions on specific individuals. Um, for example, this Wolf Warrior diplomat who has tweeted such an uh, offensive and, frankly, ridiculous image. Um, I think there's room for kind of individual levels of crackdown there. The worry I have is that you're going to start getting into the sort of retaliatory uh, tit-for-tat trade war that impoverishes everyone, makes no one better off, and doesn't actually uh, translate into any sort of increased strategic control from either the West or Australia. We have to remember that China has got a huge population and military power. They've got plenty of trading partners. They are much bigger um, in terms of economic power than Australia. And in those sort of situations, they, they're sort of situation where a trade war is even more likely to lead to escalations and impoverishment for ordinary people rather than any sort of positive outcome. It is an, it is an interesting challenge. Um, so far, despite the fact that China has banned the imports of actually a bunch of different Australian goods, or at least limited on things like coal, lamb, timber, barley, um, the actual overall amount of trade with China uh, and Australia hasn't really changed that much. It's actually only down 4% on the same period in last year, according to the latest statistics, and so $142 billion. And a lot of that's made up of iron ore, so a good that China really, really needs. And perhaps that's, you know, we should kind of see China in the, the mercantilist way they see us, which is if there's a useful good with which we can trade with them, let, let's go ahead and do it. But we have to be careful not to compromise our values too much in the process. Oh, that's the thing. It is remarkable, the fact that there is still so much trade and there has been such a a small relative decline in trade between Australia and China. You mentioned something like iron ore as the kind of dependency that China have. I think it goes to show that at least when, when it comes down to the, the raw money and finances of it all, actually China does significantly value trade and they're, uh, they're not willing to give up the important imports that they get from Australia. So, Tom, for the UK, there's there's always all this idea around the kind of Cameron Osborne era of the the golden um, relationship and between the UK and China and uh, the kind of growing prosperous together lines, which you know all very nice and and I think we should acknowledge China's success in terms of pulling hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, of course. But was that potentially geostrategically a bit naive in retrospect for the UK and and have things very much changed now? Yeah, I think that's I think that's certainly fair to say the the whole idea that you can sort of normalize China by bringing it into that global trading system has simply proven to to not be true. We haven't seen um, China as it has grown wealthier uh, um, and enriched its middle class. We haven't seen greater political um, freedom and, and and liberalization in the social sphere. Actually, as it's got richer, it's used that um, unprecedented wealth to uh, construct the most socially repressive um, system imaginable for keeping track of its citizens and repressing them. Um, and I think to some extent, the, the West has enabled that. Um, but then when we come to sanctions, looking at what the EU has done to Russia in the last uh, 10 or so years, um, Actually, Putin's approval within Russia has been rising as the West 
um, tried to choke it off economically. So I'm, I'm not sure that always these sort of simple magic button solutions can uh, work, really. I mean, sometimes they seem to be counterproductive. Yeah, it seems like it's, it's one of these situations where it's actually worse to, to do something than to do nothing. And of course, all of the political incentives in uh, various countries uh, point towards doing something as, as being better. At least the leaders and governments can point and say, well, we're aware of the problems with China in these various different areas. Here's what we've done to try and combat it. Uh, whereas in actual fact, the best policy when it comes to trade, at least, is, is not to do nothing. I mentioned Magnitsky-style sanctions, for example, but not to start a trade war. Uh, it's one of those things where you, you've just got to be patient and hope. And as much as there's, there's things that you'd like to do, and there's things that we have done which are fantastic, if you look at uh, Hong Kong, for example, and BNO Nationals, if we uh, look at some of our foreign policy pronouncements when it comes to Taiwan, uh, when it comes to criticizing Uyghur repression, I think we can do that, but in terms of the, I guess, the hard stuff, uh, it's best that we, we stay away from it. Look, I, I agree with you in terms of tariffs 100%. Tariffs are a tax on your domestic consumers, and the US lost out substantially as a result of tariffs. It didn't bring back manufacturing jobs, but it did cost a lot of jobs in agriculture and a lot of export-based jobs from the US to China. Um, that said, at the same time, I think there are a lot of things we can do and there are a lot of issues with China that we need to highlight and point out in terms of stealing intellectual property, um, manipulating the currency, their huge domestic subsidies. We could argue that's kind of beneficial to the West, but even so, it's not consistent with WTO rules. Um, they have export restrictions. They limit foreign investment. Um, in a lot of ways, they're not following the rules-based order in which they are trying to benefit. And I think we can try to use the rules-based order in order to respond to that. that that's the entire point of the system. And, and this is where I think Trump made a huge mistake in terms of like, pulling out of the WTO. I mean, the WTO could be used as a tool um, to try to create some legitimacy around the issues that, that China is doing without necessarily resorting to tariffs. Um, at the same time, Trump made a huge mistake by pulling out of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, that was custom designed as a response to China by bringing together a lot of different Pacific countries into a trade, into stronger trade links um, that did not include China. So uh, don't take, I, I take your point that there's some things we shouldn't do, but I think there's still some things that, that we can and, and very much should do at the same time. Yeah. And just a, a quick follow up on the point about the rules-based order. I, I think we have a reason to be more optimistic now about the future of trying to tackle some of these issues using the rules-based order, uh, thanks to the, the election of, uh, of President Biden, who seems to be very much a creature of the, the old school uh, rules-based order and is also as tough, uh, if not in some cases, more tough on China than his, his presidential predecessor. So I'm optimistic someone like Biden is, is going to be more able to bring together some of the countries that are involved um, and that have the most influence in these sort of areas uh, and build coalitions that make China's um, China's egregious violations of uh, world trading rules a, a lot less easy to continue. So, Tom, in terms of you were talking about earlier some of the grievances that uh, China had with Australia, and it seems like in many respects, um, Australia has been pushing harder on China and other countries. But at the same time, if you, if you look at where the UK is going in terms of policy, um, Huawei is being banned. There's new foreign uh, investment and interference laws coming into effect. And of course, the UK ultimately also did support uh, the COVID-19 inquiry. Um, can you see any kind of backlash from China to the UK? Is this a potential lesson? Or is China more likely perhaps just going after 
a smaller, you know, potentially weaker country like Australia in order to, um, as a kind of warning to everyone else, that they, they can't really carry through the warning to everyone else. Yeah, I think there's certainly an element of there's a reason why Australia has been picked out and it's 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 a dissuasion strategy more than anything else. I'm not sure if China can really go on doing this to every single country that calls it out because, of course, there are increasing numbers of them and it is becoming the global norm. Um, thankfully, we're seeing a, a, a big swing in terms of China scepticism or at least the CCP uh, scepticism. Um, so, so I, I, I think it's in, it's impossible to say. Really, we haven't seen a uh, firm policy response uh, from China to the BNO offer um, that this country has made. Although we've seen a, a great war of words and and many threats, we haven't seen actually anything come through on policy. So, I think it might be too early to say um, if China has a has a big grand scheme for anyone that um, that criticizes it. Um, and, and it's one of those issues where we'll have to sort of wait and see as, as more things develop. Yeah, I think the story between Australia and China about a war of words, and there have been some obviously substantial measures, as you mentioned, but again, going back to that trade volume figure and your fall of 4%, I think there's parallels with the UK situation here. We've seen a lot of war of words and some significant policy actions as well. But if you look at the the raw data on, say, Chinese investment into the UK or trade volumes, they might not be in the, the heady days of um, the Cameron and Osborne Lovin, but they're still certainly very high. I mean, it was only very recently that we saw um, Jingi Group, uh, Chinese steelmaker, acquiring British steel in the UK, for example. So there, there's definitely still uh, a lot of cooperation, at least on the economic sense. And we shouldn't exaggerate, I think, the, the extent to which things have been affected in trade terms so far. That might change, of course. Well, of course, in the end, if it's if it's beneficial to China, China's not going to turn down the trade. Uh, and I think more or less, we're going to have to take the same approach. Um, moving on, though, in terms of thinking about life after COVID. So the idea that everything will change in a so-called Great Reset after COVID-19 has grabbed popular attention. We are supposedly going to live our lives completely differently. Uh, Businesses will operate on social and environmental grounds rather than the greedy and immoral pursuit of profit and enriching their shareholders. And if the other conspiracy theorists are to be believed, uh, world government is merely moments away. Uh, Matthew, should we be using COVID-19 as a way to reshape our economy and fundamentally overhaul how we operate uh, Western capitalism? Absolutely not. Unless, of course, uh, that overhauling is exactly the kind of overhauling I'd like to see, which is uh, far more focused on profit delivery and shareholder value and ensuring that we have freer markets and less red tape. Read more at (laughs) adamsmith.org. If that's the great reset you're looking for, then we should absolutely do it straight away. I mean, the reality is we've got a lot of people right now who are trying to use uh, the, the classic kind of idiom of, of never let a good crisis go to waste, and they're pigeonholing whatever they've asked for in the past um, into the latest crisis. So the, the um, Davos uh, folk who have been talking about you know shareholder versus stakeholder capitalism, that kind of classic, it's not a new debate. Milton um, Friedman talked about whether or not share, um, companies should 
be profit-seeking entities. He said it's corrupt for businesses to use um, shareholders' money for any other purpose. Adam Smith talked about issues in terms of the corporation because uh, there's issues that a uh, manager of a corporation won't necessarily act in the best interests of the owner of a corporation. We've been having these debates forever. They're, they're, they're really, quite frankly, um, almost almost circular and, and and quite boring. We go we go back and forth on them. Um, in terms of this kind of border question, it's, and we get this a lot in the UK, in terms of build back better, now, it's never quite clear what that means. It seems to me what, whatever kind of policy list people would like. Uh, in Boris Johnson's case, it's this kind of focus on levelling up. Now, I've spoken previously on the podcast about my scepticism about that, but I think you can just even make a broader argument here to say that when it comes to recovering from COVID, um, the, the government won't be directing the recovery. They've definitely directed, to some extent, although people's own behaviour directed the, the um, recession. What's going to happen is people are going to have to naturally find, you know, the entrepreneurs are going to have to find new products to develop and sell to people. Um, people's patterns of behaviour and things they want are going to change over time. They, these aren't top-down decisions about what the economy is going to look like. Uh, and therefore, we're probably just going to hurt the process of the recovery of that job creation we now need, which would be the first and foremost priority if we start using COVID for some particularly, even if it's, you know, a nice purpose for that particular purpose. It's either something that, you know, the government should intervene in some of the climate change. There's, there's no doubt justification uh, to some extent of, of government involvement in the economy to to mitigate um, carbon emissions. But that's that's completely independent of COVID. It's 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 either good or bad policy independent of it. We can't, it's not like, the economy is is some kind of a machine that you can you know, reconstruct in a different way. It's it's a living organism that's constantly changing and evolving. And if we try to play games with it, it will be damaged. Uh, and just a question for you, Tom. Matt mentioned this kind of idea of never let a, a good crisis go to waste. And we've seen plenty of, of commentators from the progressive left try and make that case. Do you think that there's such a phenomenon as disaster socialism, because we often hear about disaster capitalism from the Naomi clients of this world, and the idea that, well, capitalists will try and exploit a crisis um, in any way they can. But I've noticed that time and time again, whenever there's any sort of crisis, it's used as an excuse for uh, needing to fundamentally overhaul the, the economy, and that inevitably always leads to, uh, to calls for more intervention. Yeah, I think there's so many people on the left who sort of see this moment as as a in parallel to 1945, where you have um, uh, you've had a, a period of government control, unprecedented control over industry, over people's lives, and 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 their whole big game plan is just to continue that for as long as feasibly possible. Um, I think I'm kind of actually disappointed how um, people on the right have not been able to use this crisis very well. Uh, we haven't even been able to extend shopping hours on Sundays, which you would have thought would have been a, uh, a pandemic move that would have helped um, not only the economy, but, but control the virus. Anyway, um, minor things aside, there has been one major um, policy speech uh, under the guise of Build Back Better from the Prime Minister, and that is something that the government can actually do about, and that's housing. Um, the the housing white paper was was really positive in terms of being able to um, to to construct a zoning system that will really generate uh, much much more housing and it's one of those issues that this this country um, has been far too restrictive on um, and the government can actually do something about by getting out of the way um, and so that was actually in terms of policy terms. Um, the the one build back better policy with all that branding with all that fanfare with all that speech um, and if everything's going to be like that then that seems like a good thing 
So then in that sense, it is really just a branding exercise, of course, because if we're going to be honest with ourselves, um, housing reform was an issue that perhaps many people talked about before COVID-19. And you could argue, actually, as a result of people kind of moving out of cities to some extent, as a result of COVID, that it's slightly even less of an issue in the short run um, than than would be otherwise. But I know if if governments want to use Build Back Better to do things that, that I want them to do anyway, I'm not going to complain that much. Just on um, whether there's been anything that the right has been able to do to use this crisis to, I guess, push forward more centre-right policies. There is something that, and I'm not as optimistic about this, but it seems like we're getting more talk, especially since the spending review of um, not austerity, but looking at trying to cut back the unprecedented increase in public spending over the COVID crisis. I mean, if you look at uh, the Chancellor recently saying that uh, Rishi Sunak, he was kept up at night worrying about interest rate hikes. Now, on the face of it, that might be something that uh, would appeal to free marketers. But for me, especially with the in the short run, kind of trying to boost the post-COVID recovery through things like large spending cuts or, or fiscal repair or, or even tax hikes has been suggested by many um, and also is a form of austerity. I, I find that more worrying than anything else. And actually, I hope that the kind of centre-right agenda does not go the way of, of 2010 um, and we instead focus on things like economic growth and boosting productivity. Uh, you mentioned housing, Tom, that's one great way of doing it. And, and we literally build back better as opposed to metaphorically building back better by, um, well, by, by cutting unnecessarily early. Uh, moving on to some of the, the other issues with the, the Great Reset. Now that we have a, a vaccine and that it's, it's being deployed and we have uh, wonderful British citizens like William Shakespeare miraculously getting the vaccine uh, 400 years on, um, how long do you think it will take things to get back to normal? Uh, are we both optimistic or, or pessimistic about an economic recovery, Tom? I think that the data that I've seen in terms of um, PMI and, and and all that sort of things is actually a bit more positive than, than a lot of people are making out. As soon as we're past this level of restriction, um, I think that the fundamentals are there for a soaring recovery um, that does look um, sort of like like basically V-shaped with a bit of a stunt there during the um, during the second lockdown. I, I think that we are in a in a decent place to to pop back to where we were, but obviously with an enormous level of debt that will eventually need to be dealt with. Yeah, it's worth noting, I think, that the Office of Budget Responsibility, their GDP forecasts at the spending review, um, they I think they're unreasonably pessimistic in many ways. They were done before the recent news of the vaccine rollout, so I can forgive them for that somewhat. But you look at their pessimistic scenario they said the long-run impact of covid on the economy would be about three years worth of economic output um whereas in their optimistic scenario they basically said what what you just have tom that there's little to no long-run impact and it will be that sort of v-shaped recovery i think we should probably treat that as the most likely outcome now Uh, matthew would you say you're pretty optimistic and, and what sort of measures can ensure that optimism is not misplaced yeah, look, I'm I'm a broadly optimistic person when it when it comes to my my future projections. You could argue a little bit uh, too much, especially since I've been going around schools most of last year talking about why everything is awesome, which is a presentation I stand by, but uh, is less sustainable in, in this particular. <laughs> I look forward future. to hearing you make that uh, when we go back to talking to schools. Well, I mean, we've we've tackled a. I don't think this is the good news, and and Mr. Shakespeare himself is very aware now of our capacity for huge innovation. I I, I don't think we can. I possibly downplay just 
how quickly we have gone from a new virus to a working vaccine. And we can argue and we should argue that we should be able to do it even quicker. Moderna developed their vaccine in two days in January. And the fact that our regulatory system has taken so long, perhaps for the best in some ways to protect safety, but ultimately if something is safe and, and effective, we should be getting it to people as soon as possible. I think it's it's that kind of thing which does give me some optimism. The, the fact that we have multiple vaccines that, that all seem to work, um, even if the Oxford vaccine is slightly less effective, it's it's still beyond you know people's hopes um, six months ago, and that that'll in the kind of sh- short term isn't going to have a huge impact. And I think the next few months, uh, particularly in UK, are going to be quite miserable in terms of um, Christmas and, and January and winter spread. Uh, but but as people are getting vaccinated, we only actually have to vaccinate a relatively small number of people to reduce the the chances of people dying by two-thirds or the amount of people who die by two-thirds because if you can vaccinate everyone who's over about 70 and people and add into that people who have you know severe conditions it's really taking away the pool of people the virus can spread to in a dangerous way um and i think as that happens people are going to want to get back out there and they are going to want to spend we should remember that the roaring 20s happened after uh what was a miserable miserable flu pandemic and a world war uh, people wanted to party. Everyone wanted to to get laid. Uh, I've I've heard of some predictions of of the coming years. So we we could uh, theoretically have another Roaring Twenties on that basis. Um, in, in terms of the kind of long term outlook, I, I think it's going to take a bit of time for the economy to adjust though to its its new circumstances. Like a lot of jobs aren't coming back. You know, there's a lot of changes that are shut down. We've probably had in terms of let's just think about the high street and retail as an example. We probably had something that was going to happen in the next. 10 to 20 years happen in six months because um, people have moved so much shopping online and only so much of that is going to go back to um, physical spaces. Um, that's a huge employer. People are going to have to find other jobs. And I have no doubt that they can. I don't, I don't think we're talking about jobs apocalypse here. We're, we're always very good at creating jobs in the future. Um, but just just to kind of get back our economy to where it was and for those new jobs to form is just, is just a slow process. Um, maybe the... the official statistics are, or the official modelling is it, and kind of discussed previously how ridiculous it is, is a bit pessimistic. Um, but I think it is going to take a bit of time. Uh, and Tom, you were talking about earlier the need to eventually either pay down or, or grow our way out of or somehow recoup some of the extra government spending that's gone on as a result of this crisis. And uh, the wonderful people at the Wealth Tax Commission have shockingly suggested that taxing the wealthy might be... Uh, a way to pay off uh, coronavirus uh, maxed out credit card, as Laura Koonsberg famously and controversially put it recently. Uh, do you think that a wealth tax is a potential way uh, to, to boost the recovery, I guess? I mean, if, if the plan of a wealth tax is to generate a greater level of equality within Britain, then perhaps it would be a good idea, mainly because all the rich people would leave. Um, I don't see it's a way to deliver um, a, a paying back over, over of debt because obviously it will it will crush our our ability to grow our way out of this enormous level of debt and obviously that is the only sane way to deal with it. I mean, I find it extraordinary that people, as as you were saying earlier, taxation is austerity. And all these anti-austerity campaigners seem to only look at one half of what happened in the 2010 to 2015-16 
period. Um, there were, of course, some cuts in public spending, but there were an enormous number of tax rises as well. And that's something that really pinched um, a lot of people. And, and, and I think that that gets massively overlooked in this entire discussion. Now, of course, we have to grow our way out of this, uh, out of this debt. What, what's useful about it, I suppose, is it's a one-time thing. This isn't going to be a uh, recurring payment that we have to do. It's something that will be in the past once we're past this pandemic. So I suppose in that sense, we can treat it a little bit differently than the kind of um, day-to-day spending that does require um, spending cuts sometimes when when government inflates uh, in an unsustainable way. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that the borrowing costs that the UK faces at the moment are extremely low. Uh, if we look at, for example, the um, the maturity on the average maturity on UK debt, it's around 16 years, and we're issuing new debt at medium to long-term maturities. So we don't even have to worry about the, the kind of scenario of interest rates rising significantly and affecting our debt servicing costs. So we're not in the same situation as we were, say, for example, 2010. As you mentioned, pandemic-specific spending is a one-off cost. Um, and I don't think this kind of tax hikes or, or indeed um, sweeping spending cuts is necessary right now to stop us accumulating more debt. Uh, we need to think about it when we decide we do want to pay it down, which is hopefully after we've uh, we've built back better and boosted growth and, and boosted productivity through sort of measures that you mentioned earlier, like housing reform. What does worry me though, Daniel, and I think absolutely right about the, the spending in this particular time period, um, is that there is kind of now a built-in larger budget deficit for a few reasons. One, the fact that the economy is smaller and it's probably going to be smaller for a couple of years. Um, and therefore, the size of government, if, if it doesn't shrink at that same rate, if there is a willingness to cut spending, which doesn't seem to be from this government, um, then you're going to have a larger state, which is going to push down on the, the productive half of the economy. And there's pretty good broader research that a, a bigger state leads to a kind of smaller private sector. There's a crowding artifact at some point. You've also got the, the fact that this government, in terms of its stated intentions, is a big spending government. Uh, it's not a, a free market government, unfortunately, as much as we might like some of the things it's doing, let's say in housing, it, when it comes to spending, I don't think Boris has ever seen a, a big infrastructure project that he hasn't wanted to fund, uh, whether or not it has any particular value or purpose. So I, I think those are going to be the underlying issues of whether or not we can reduce spending, at least to some extent, in the short run, as to not create a situation where the, the state is kind of crushing the private sector, whilst at the same time um, growing the economy. I mean, there is there is a good a good book about this that did look through um, different policies ac- across Europe over the last decade and, and did conclude that if you want to cut debt, um, increasing taxes doesn't really work because when you increase taxes, you shrink the rest of the economy and it, it pushes away investors. You do have to cut spending if you want to um, decrease the deficit, if you want to decrease debt. It just seems like this, this particular government isn't willing to do that. And UK political debate seems to have reached the opposite conclusion um, about recent history that perhaps spending cuts weren't necessary. And I, I think we have to remake the, the point that there was a huge structural deficit um, in 2010. There is some structural deficit to some extent at the moment. And even though we can borrow cheaply, if that deficit sustains itself, that the cost of borrowing will go up and, and the huge amount of borrowing the government's already done, the costs on that will go up as well. So it's it's not all rosy. And as much as I'd like to say, let's just grow the economy. And, and I think we absolutely do need to grow the economy. I, I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging. It's surprisingly pessimistic today, but um, just a, a bit of a bit of realism, perhaps. I think coming back to Tom's point on housing earlier is, is key here. If 
the government, as you mentioned, is is not a particularly free market one. It's not willing to cut spending in, say, areas like the triple lock on pensions, and it's not willing to uh, to do any particular tax hikes, which which is obviously good news. Then something like housing reform is basically a free way of growing our way out of having to worry as much about the, the deficit and the debt that we've accumulated from COVID-19. It's not something that costs the Treasury anything, and yet it will, if put through as it um, seems to be going through, uh, despite some of the consultation responses we've seen recently, which uh, are slightly worrying reading, uh, then we're going to get a boost to productivity. People are going to be able to live where they want more. They're going to have more disposable income, but they're not going to be uh, wasting on artificially inflated rental or housing costs, for example. So something like that, I think, is the way that this government can help get their way out of this fiscal mess. And look, that's just got to be the start of it as well. Planning is is one area where, where the government can remove a bunch of red tape and, and create more productive activity. And they could do the same by reforming the tax system and, and having less pressure on, you can even do it in a revenue neutral way, but having less pressure on investment and less pressure on job creation, as well as just a kind of broader red tape cutting agenda um, that, that reduces burdens on businesses they can hire and, and start up more easily. Surely you're not suggesting, say, for example, scrapping the factory tax, Matthew. <laughs> I would have never possibly come to that idea in every single podcast we've had every all year, basically. <laughs> well, I think we will leave it there for this podcast. Thank you very much to Tom Harwood of Guido Fawkes and my co-host, Matthew Lesh, the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, for joining me. This has been the Pin Factory podcast, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. And if you like what you hear, then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast platform. Uh, Thanks for joining us and we will see you again next week.